We are in part 28 of our Life of Worship series through the lives of Saul and David. And although it is coming to a close, it seems like we've been doing this forever, all right? But I hope it's been a blessing to you. Today's message I entitled, Really? Again? And we're going to talk about when God allows patterns to spin through our life and it feels like we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. So let me begin with some thoughts. Have you ever noticed that God tends to bring things in cycles into your life time and time again? How many times have you said, seriously, I'm doing this again? Lord, I thought we were done with this. I thought I already did this. And now you keep popping it back up again. Lord, can't we just change it? Uh, Lord, I understand I'm always going to have struggles, but can't I struggle with something new? Uh, why does God allow that? Why, why does it seem... Uh, let me give you some examples. For, for example, let's say you say, Lord, in my 20s and in my 30s, I, I built and built and built for my family. I tried to work on uh, my job and to become the best as I could in my occupation to provide for my family. And, and Lord, it seems like I was doing so well. And then with one massive economic downturn, here I am having to build all over again. But Lord, now I'm in my 50s. Really, do I have to start over? Or I've been investing in this relationship, in this marriage for decades, and now I'm single? How is that working? Or really, I've been struggling with alcohol since I was 14 years old. Why am I still struggling with it now that I'm 39? Something like that. If you see these patterns coming up, or why do I keep dating the wrong people? It seems that it always ends up chaotic. Or why do I keep getting let go from this job and this job and this job? If patterns are spinning through your life, then you're going to want to pay attention this morning. Because what we're about to see is King David is brought around to do something he's already done. He's already had a hard time getting to the throne. He's already had to put down a rebellion and bloop, pops up again. Here we go all over again. Deja vu. Why does God do that? I think that there's a lot of reasons why he does it. And I don't want any of us to just automatically assume we know why. But let's talk about some of the possibilities. For example, in this scenario, we're about to read the repeated pattern is because of David's sin and the consequences that are radiating out. When David made the option to kill a good man, steal his wife for adultery purposes, and to play, let's hide that. God brought a curse upon his family and he said, the sword will never depart from your house. I will bring chaos into your world. Already, by the time we arrive in the story, David has lost four sons. Four sons have died right in front of his eyes. How much is it going to cost? Is it always because of consequences of sin? No, it's not. Sometimes... These repeated patterns are that God is trying to burn something out of you that you don't even know the full effect on. You don't understand. Like, for example, let's say uh, you did something maybe wrong, but wow, the punishment that came upon you didn't even fit the crime. It was so far beyond. And God kept pushing you and pushing you. 
And you're thinking, Lord, this isn't necessary. It's overkill. Why are you doing this to me? It's like you're, dra- you're, you're grinding me into the ground. I would suggest to you that it's very possible that God knows how deep that root goes. And you would probably only cut it off at the top. And the whole root system would be wicked. When you invite Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life, He's not cool with good enough. Sometimes, as a good surgeon does, he keeps digging and digging and digging to root out things that haven't even come on your radar yet. But if you submit to him, Lord, I want to be like clay in the hands of a master potter. If you submit your life to God and say, God, transform me that you might use me. Then that really means that. And God is not just going to quit when you say, I'm cool. I've got it now. You know what? Maybe you don't. Sometimes repeated patterns are because you're blind to what's causing it. You know, I I mentioned the dating thing, yeah? And we've all heard of the phrase that your picker's broken. Anybody ever heard of that one? Right? You just keep picking the wrong person, right? Why is that? Well, you know what? Maybe God is consistently trying to show something up and say, hey, why is that repeated pattern happening? Now, here's the irony of this whole scenario. Every one of us have friends that we can think of right now. We wish we're hearing this message. And we all have friends that we have talked about with maybe our friends or significant others. And we've said, man, how many times have we told them not to do that? They're not even listening to me. They are consistently making horrible, stupid decisions. I love them, but they're morons. The great irony of all that is they're having the same discussion about you. We are so blind to so many things, and so God keeps bringing up pattern and pattern and pattern and pattern and pattern. Why? Because He's trying to get to root cause. He's not just trying to treat symptoms. But I will tell you this, God will push you further than you ever imagined. As a counselor and a pastor for as many years as I've been doing this already, I have found that no matter how much I work with another human individual, they change In a very resistant way. I could try and try. Any change I've ever seen occurs because the Lord came down and did the change himself. I cannot change another human being. But I will tell you this. The way that God changes people is brutal. He will do stuff to you that's far beyond what you deem nice. Right? And he will allow things into your life that you're going, no way. I thought you were a good God. He said, I am. But he allows things because he knows what's in your tool chest that you haven't seen yet. You have cancer and then what? Your car breaks down? God, cancer wasn't enough. Now this? You get a DUI. It's followed by a divorce. God, that wasn't enough. I didn't learn. Is that what you're telling me? Sometimes God allows repeated patterns in your life and it has nothing to do with sin at all. It has to do with Him getting glory. There seems to be repeated patterns in the Old Testament of people being thrown in lion's dens and thrown in the fire and they didn't do anything wrong. Job seemed to have a repeated pattern and he was one of the most innocent men on the face of this earth. Why? Because God 
wanted to utilize him for the highest calling. And that is suffering for the glory of God. Listen, I don't know why God has the repeated patterns happening in your life, but I do know this. It's not likely random. The minute patterns are established, random is out the window. Something's going on. And you need to check in with your heavenly father, all of us do, and say, Lord, what do you want me to see? If he's quiet on it, cool, check in next week. God, what are we doing? Maybe he'll have mercy on you to let you see the plan. But sometimes, if you saw the plan, you'd mess up the process. So sometimes he's quiet. The bottom line is this. It's a fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. God tends to give us more than we expect. God tends to give us more than we expect. Let me read a short recap as we enter into the story of David once again. And I wrote it down so I wouldn't take so much time to say it. Because I tend to paraphrase a little longer than normal. So let me just read this for you. Give you a... A little bring up to speed here. King David was king over all of Israel for many, many years, and things were going rather well for a while. But then his family fell apart. His sons became corrupt, and his next heir to the throne, Absalom, took a shot at taking the throne from his dad instead of waiting around, and he did a rather good job. He rallied all of the north to his side, and in a still relatively unstable nation, they went with the new charismatic leader, and David didn't seem to fight back. He was conflicted about fighting against his son and fighting for a throne that he knew that God was in charge of. So he moved and fled from the main part of the nation across the Jordan River and launched a counterattack from there, from a town called Mahanaim. Thousands died in the Civil War. David issued a warning not to harm Absalom, his son, but to capture him alive and well. But as David's men beat down Absalom's new army, in the process, Joab, his commander of his army, saw Absalom hanging in a tree, threw three javelins into his body, allowed ten men to finish off the process, and killed him. David was crushed and mourned his son, souring the victory of the day. Joab chastised David for it. David sucked it up, met with his people, and encouraged them. But as we begin our story, he is still on the right side of the river, the east side of Israel. And they have now killed the new king, and there is a void in leadership, and the nation is nervous. Will David come back? Will the enemies take advantage of this and fill in that void? What do we do? Who will be our leader? That's where our story begins. Would you turn with me to 2 Samuel 19.8 if you haven't already? And I want to throw up some maps. Now, I forgot my laser pointer on my desk, so you're going to have to trust me on this one. Here we go. We have a map with the modern day names. These are not the names that were back in the day when David ran it. These are more modern, but I merely want to get us established on geography. It is a world-known fact that Americans are terrible at geography. So we're going to let you know. If you realize the, the African continent is cresting there at the bottom of our map. We have North Africa rising there. And then we have Egypt. That's where the whole Moses thing happened. And they crossed over the Red Sea. And they entered into the Middle East area where we have Jerusalem marked. Up top, as you go up through areas like Syria, you hit Turkey. Turkey is Asia Minor coming out from a right-hand side headed left. You go around the horn, you'll see Greece. Go around again, you see Italy, Spain, and Northern Europe. Let's focus in on Jerusalem here into that small Middle Eastern portion. Let's blow that up in the next map. 
We will leave this next map up for the remainder of the message because it has a bunch of different uh, areas that we need to look at. The biggest part that I want to draw your attention to is that there is a big Israel and a big Judah on the map. The top is what we would refer to as the north, also known as Israel. Thanks, Joe. This is very important because what you're going to hear about is the north fighting with the south, arguing with the south. Even though David uh, and Absalom launched from Judah, the southern portion, uh, Saul was in charge originally of the northern portion, and Absalom took the northern portion, but the north and the south don't like each other. They never have. The tension we're about to read will last throughout in an underground fashion throughout David's reign, throughout Solomon's reign, and then it will ultimately schism the entire nation. And forever after, Israel will be two pieces. So whenever you hear Israel, I want you to think north. When you hear Judah, I want you to think south. How many tribes are in Israel at this time? Twelve. How many are in the north? Ten. How many are in the south? Math. Two. All right. Fantastic. Okay. Good enough. Now there's a natural dividing line that's going to be referred to quite a bit in the story, and that is the Jordan River, right? Apparently I've had too much coffee. Look at my, look at that. I'm trying to hold it still. Check it out. All right. <laughs> I have so many jokes that I cannot use. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> it's very hard to be a pastor. Here we go. Uh, from the Dead Sea up to the Sea of Galilee, there's a natural dividing line here, which is Jordan River. David is on the right-hand side of that, the eastern side, because he had to flee out of the nation. He wants to come home and go all the way down to Jerusalem. But as he comes in, he doesn't want to come back as a king to a bunch of people that don't want him there. So he is going to try to get a feel, a pulse on the nation, how many people want him to come home. And of all people that should probably lead him home, it should be his tribe, the tribe of Judah. That's where our story begins. Let's pray for the word. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we could sit as a family in a, your living room and be able to read your word, study what you have for us. And we ask that you would open our heart and Holy Spirit, you take over from this point forward and backwards. Lord, I just pray that you would move on every heart and let us know what we need to hear and have the power to change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here we go. Second Samuel 19.8. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us, meaning David, from the hands of our enemies, and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he's fled out of the land from his son Absalom. Meaning we all are reflecting back, and David was a great king, but now he's gone. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, the new charismatic guy we thought was going to be great, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, leaders, elders of Israel, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? King David heard about it, so he sent his message to Zadok and Abiathar. Those are his priests back in Jerusalem. Remember, he left the crew there for intelligence reasons. He sent a message that says, say to the elders of Judah, say to my crew, my people, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel Excuse me, Israel has come to the king. You are my brothers, you're my bone and my flesh. Why should you then be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. All right, 
big, huge, massive shift, what happened? Joab's always been the head of David's special ops division and military. Joab has a brother named Abishai. Remember, those are the hua guys, yeah? These are the tough as nails, I kill people in my sleep people, yeah? Now, these guys always want to kill everybody. Now, he just hopped over Joab and gave the job to Absalom's guy who just lost the war. Why in the world would you take out your guy who's been with you this long, put in a new guy who lost the war? Two reasons. Number one, David needs all the help he can get. Amasa was the last leader of the majority of Israel's army. If he's going to come back and lead them, he needs to make a political move. Number two, Joab just killed his son. No matter what David said, don't touch my son, bring him back alive, Joab didn't have that type of patience. He was the one that initiated the killing of Absalom, and David's having a hard time getting over that. Yeah? All right. We move forward. Verse 14, and he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so they sent word to the king and said, come home. Return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Haven't we already done this? Didn't Saul keep out David for a really, really long time? Didn't David have to struggle to earn the respect of the nation? Didn't David already put down one rebellion? Didn't David already have to do all this stuff and now he's doing it all over again? And it's not going to be easy. It's going to be years of turmoil. Why is God doing it again? Ah, I know how that feels. Now, what happens if you're coming back into a nation from the right-hand side and you're coming back into a nation that really had a bunch of people that flipped on you? How does that work? I mean, they all betrayed you. So how do you go back in there and hang with those people? The next paraphrase I'm going to give to you in this, in this passage is that a bunch of the guys came down to talk with David. And a lot of them realize we have the old king coming back. Uh-oh, I hooked my train to the wrong car. Yeah? Oh, no, I went with the wrong guy. My guy died. What do I do now? Remember Shammai? Shammai was the guy that was like, boo, boo. Remember him? And he was the guy that's, I'll throw rocks at your head, and he's throwing dust in the air. Remember that guy? And all the special ops guys wanted to kill him, and Abishai's like, can I kill him now? Remember that whole thing? Shammai runs up to David with a thousand men. From the tribe of Benjamin. Hey, dude, about the whole throwing rocks at your head, I was way off. I totally uncalled for. You know what? We're buddies, yeah? We're cool? Now, it's funny because David says we're cool. And he pardons him. Now, we look at that and we go, man, that, he, that's pretty tough that you would do that. Because he really cursed you and made your day horrible. However, it was merely a pardon. David's playing a political game here. How do we know that? Because on David's deathbed in 2 Kings chapter 2, his last command to his son Solomon is, Solomon, I promised Shammai that I wouldn't kill him. You know what to do. <laughs> so I don't think there's a whole lot of forgiveness on that one. I think there's a whole lot of pardon on that one. Ziba, uh, really influential personal assistant to Saul, who was then later transferred to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, he shows up and he's hanging out with David. And then Mephibosheth comes. Mephibosheth, everybody remember David's best friend, Jonathan? He had one son left that was crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. 
Remember how Ziba, his personal assistant, came to David when they were having that bad day when David got kicked out of the nation. And on that day, Ziba came up and said, dude, Mephibosheth, he flipped on you, man. David was crushed. He said, all right, I'm taking away all his inheritance. I'm going to give it to you. Well, as he comes back in, here comes Mephibosheth riding up. High king falls down before him. David's like, what do you want? You flipped on me. He said, no, I didn't. Look at me, man. I haven't showered since the day you left. I haven't taken care of myself. I've been in mourning since the day you walked out. Why would I flip on you? You have been like a father to me. I don't have my dad. You could have killed me. You set me up at your table. You allowed me to hang with your kids. Why would you think that I flipped on you? Because Ziba told me you did. Really? You mean the same guy that got his donkey ready, took off on me? Dude, I'm crippled. He didn't hook me up. He didn't take me with him. Then he rides up to you and he lies about me. David's like, ooh, that is a problem. I gave him all your stuff. (laughs) All right, I don't have time to get into this, gentlemen. We're going to split it. You take half, you take half. And literally, Mephibosheth said, you know what? The fact that you're back alive, it's good enough for me. Let him have it all. Really good-hearted man. Intriguing. But let me ask you this. How do you then lead when a bunch of people flipped on you? A life of worship is a life of forgiveness. And there's a bunch of us in this room that have bitterness. And we have allowed bitterness to last in our hearts. I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to ruin you for leadership. I know you think it's in a compartment and it has nothing to do with the church, has nothing to do with you, has everything to do with something that happened in your past. And you think that you're, you know what, I've handed everything else over to God and it's no big, it's bleeding out. And we can feel it. We know it. And here's the problem. The minute you go head to head with somebody else, it erupts out of nowhere. I know you think it's dead and buried. It's not dead and buried until you hand it over to the Lord again. And then guess what you're going to do? You're going to hand it over to the Lord again. Because you'll even shrink back from leadership because you know there is a dark place of unforgiveness in your life. And what it means is that I and other leaders in this church cannot use you. Because you're ready to fall apart and bleed on the sheep. That's not acceptable. So I know that you want it to remain hidden. It's not going to. It's going to keep rising up. Until you allow Jesus to heal it completely. It's going to kneecap you. I know that's not easy. I don't fully understand forgiveness either. And I have my own issues. Let's pick it back up. Verse 41 One last guy that David kind of has a a connection with is Barzillai. Barzillai is an 80-year-old guy that basically housed David and his men while they were in Mahanaim. And David said, hey, I really want to honor you. You want to come back with me? And he looked at him and he goes, Dave, I'm old. I don't want to travel. I'm staying home. Can I die there? Dave's like, all right. They part ways. David starts home. Verse 41, then all the men of Israel came to the king, meaning all the north came to the king, why have our brothers, the men of the south, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? But then all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. They're fighting. Why then are you angry over this matter? What, have we eaten at the king's expense? Does he give us kickbacks? Has he given us any gift? No. The men of Israel answered the men of Judah, wait, we have ten tribes, you have two. We have ten shares in the king. 
And in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? We were, not the first to, were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. There's the north-south divide. They're going to fight until it ultimately ruins everything. A life of worship is not a life of jealousy and envy. These guys couldn't even rejoice in anything because they had so much envy and jealousy. Who gets to bring the king back? You know what? Who cares? Praise the Lord that the king's back. That we have a good guy at the helm. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. Now can you imagine being listed as a worthless man in the most popular book of all time? That's a drag. Hard to shake that reputation. And he blew the trumpet. That means he called people together and he said because of this fight between the north and the south... We as the north have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tenth, O Israel. So all the men of the north withdrew from David, and they all followed Sheba. We have a new rebellion rising up, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines. Remember that Absalom had dishonored in public daylight. David's not about to reconnect with them. The king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house, put them in a house under guard, provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Hmm. Let me paraphrase for you. Meanwhile, Sheba, who's now all ticked off, grabs the hearts of the north, and he takes a little crew and starts running north, and he's going to hang out way up here at the top. As he runs through, he's trying to gather people to say, we hate David, we hate David. And he's trying to lead a rebellion. But he has to hurry up and get to an area where he can lock into a fortress. So David goes, if we do not shut this guy down, he's going to be worse than Absalom. Abishai, come here. Now remember, Joab is normally the boss. He asked Amasa to do it, the new boss. But Amasa couldn't get the guys together in three days. He bypasses the new general, grabs Abishai, skips over Joab because he's still mad at him, grabs his brother, Abishai, go get him. Now, Abishai, of course, is fired up, right? I get to go kill someone. So he takes off. Joab goes with him. Joab's like, I don't care if I'm in charge or not. I get to kill somebody. Let's go, right? So they take off, and they start chasing him down. They run him all the way down. On the way, Amasa shows up. Amasa's like, hey guys, sorry I'm late. I know it's super awkward. I know it's supposed to be in charge, but you know what? I had stuff. I was washing my hair, right? So he has all this stuff, all these excuses, and Joab goes, ah, that's, it's so good to meet you. That's awesome. I know we were fighting before. That's not a good thing. Here, man, let me give you a kiss. Come here for a second. As he leans over to give him a kiss, he drops his sword on the ground. Oh, excuse me. Sorry about that. Reaches down, grabs the sword, jams it into his stomach, and kills him. And he goes, oh, look who got the job back. Oh, it's me! grabs his body, throws it off on the side of the road. All right, guys, let's go. (laughs) How Joab can just slaughter people that David just put in place, I don't know, but he's pretty good at it. So he and his brother Abishai, they chase after Sheba. They go all the way up north, and he's hidden in a fortress. So they start trying to lay seeds to it. That's where we pick up the story. All right, so let's grab it in verse 14, chapter 20, verse 14. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, that's a city, 
of Beth Makkah. And all the Bichrites, his crew, assembled and followed him into the city. And all the men who were with Joab, notice he's back in charge, came and besieged him in that city. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Okay, they're serious about this. We will kill this guy. Then a wise woman called from the city. Hey, 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 hold up, hold up. Listen, listen. Tell Joab, come here. I want to speak with you. That's a pretty gutsy woman. All right? She said, come here for a second. So he came near and the woman said, are you Joab? And he said, I am. She said to him, listen to the words of your servant. He said, all right, I'm listening. She said, they used to say a long time ago about our city, just come and ask counsel at our city and they would settle a matter. We're the wise crew. We're a helpful city. I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. But what, you walk in seeking to destroy a city that's a mother in Israel? Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? I mean, what is wrong with you? We're all Israelites and you're storming the castle? What are you doing? These are your people. Joab said, hold up, hold up. You got it wrong. Verse 20. Far be it from me. Far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba... The son of Bichri has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I'll withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. That's a hardcore lady. You know, you know right there that Joab saw stars, and he's like, You're beautiful. The woman went to the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem with the king. David sets up his new cabinet and he's back in charge. All right, so what's the point of all of that? The point of all of that is here we go again. David's crushing rebellions again. Man, how many rebellions do I have to crush? Man, how hard is it to hang on to this throne? Why do I feel like my life is like a hamster wheel and I keep doing the same thing over and over and over again? God, why can't I just move forward? I know that God has a lot of twists and turns in your life, and I know a lot of the turns look like U-turns. I know you feel like you're going backwards. And we've talked throughout this whole series about how God may be working in your life. So let me remind you of this. You and I have bought into this concept that success means forward advancement. That is not correct. Why? Because success means being in the will of God. And what if the will of God is behind you? What if the will of God is to the extreme left? Or the extreme right. Why are you assuming that you have to advance forward and have everything go well for you for it to be God's will? What if God wants you to turn around and go a different direction? Why is God not allowed to derail, knock you off the tracks to get you into his will? Why does it have to be always forward progress? We're buying into the wrong concept. Success is defined by, is God pleased? Success is defined is, am I where God wants me? It has nothing to do with the job you're in. It has nothing to do with the relationship you're in. It has nothing to do with any of those things about status. It has to do with whether or not you're where God wants you. And sometimes... Your forward progress that you've made for all these years was done without him. And so it's not forward progress at all. 
Sometimes God wants you to stop, re-rack, and go a totally different direction. I know you don't like it. I know David didn't like it. And I certainly know I don't like it. But who's in charge? Where do you really want to go? I can tell you that on a good day when your head is clear, you really do want to be where God wants you. I do know that. On a cloudy day, you just want to be somewhere better. I know. But that's not God's will sometimes. God will utilize suffering in your life, repetitive suffering, repetitive challenges, to teach you and train you and to make you into a whole different type of person. He's doing it with David, and David is the apple of his eye. He's doing it with David, and David is a man after God's own heart. So why wouldn't he do it with us? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us walk with you. Thank you, Jesus, for providing us a way by which we know and we can be confident that as you have adopted us into the family of God, that you seek our best. Lord, we are here for your glory, whatever that means. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.